All right, it's been about three weeks since I have produced an episode, and I uh, didn't intend to go three weeks. I actually expected that I would be doing my daily constitutionals every couple of days, and, and yet I've only been able to do the first introductory one back on September 9th, and that was the most recent episode that I've produced. And uh, life happens, things things come up, and uh, I do apologize for that. But I want to start in today, not on another one of the daily constitutionals. This one is actually part one in a series that I'm referring to loosely as the 1800s shift. And, uh, and you'll understand why I'm, I'm calling it that here as we get into it. Uh, it is, this is not going to be um, dreadfully detailed. It's not going to be to the uh, full study on each of these topics. But I have noticed over the last couple of years in my studies on different topics, be it religious, economically, politically, um, whatever the areas are that I'm covering, I've noticed that there is a trend of when the primary influence for these things took root. And I've noticed that it's been in the 1800s, and it's been predominantly 1800s United States, even though it has affected the world at large. Now, one of the reasons why I believe that the 1800s and the United States were essential is that by that point, the world had been explored, the continents had been discovered, and the United States was being looked at as the new golden boy, the new standard in running a new nation. And so it had a heavy, heavy, heavy influence at that point. And so when things happened here, it had a tendency to create a ripple effect uh, around the world. And and so this is, uh, it's no shock to me that the 1800s United States was so influential. What is shocking is to realize that so much of what we've come to believe as the standard in life is because of things that were created, formalized, developed, whatever, in the 1800s. And the religious portion of it is massive, if for no other reason than from the fact that we had 1,800 years leading up to this, and yet it wasn't until the 1800s that people decided that they were going to be enlightened to believe the way that I'm about to approach the belief system. And... That means to me that it was an intentional shift. It was not just a, an intellectual shift. It wasn't that people were suddenly enlightened to these things. It was that there was an intentional shift that took place in the 1800s to manipulate these things. And so I'm going to start with the religious because I do believe that where religion goes, then education and economics and government goes. I do believe that. I believe that religion is the, the front piece of any change that happens. And because it, it attaches to people at their emotional level. 
then as a result of that, it gets into the way that they lead and govern eventually, see, and becomes the new standard. So you see how all those are mapped out. So I'm going to focus in on the religious one first because I think it is the key to why the other things fell into place. Now, I actually do have notes today that I'm going to try to stick primarily to, if it's possible. I'm not very good at doing that, and you know that. I can say, well, this one's going to be short, and it'll be an hour and a half uh, episode. I'm not trying to make it one of those kind of episodes today, but the topic is outlined. It is fully developed, and I hope that I can cover it in a succinct enough uh, succinct enough uh, time frame that it is economical for you to listen to and to pass on to others to listen because that's really the goal. Now, having said that, here we go. Now, although the concept, the concept of arranging biblical history into divisions or eras goes all the way back to at least to the second century and the writings of Irenaeus, okay, this idea that different time periods in church history have focused in on different biblical doctrines and that kind of thing. I mean, there is some truth to some of them, but you cannot say they're isolated. But there has been a belief in a division or an attempt to divide uh, the history in so many ways. Although all that's happened, going back at least until Irenaeus, we cannot say that there was a formalized dispensation of all of that uh, until the 1830s with a man named John Nelson Darby. Now, there were others that began talking about these concepts before that, uh, including Mary MacDonald and others that... So there are people that can argue that he wasn't, that Darby wasn't the start of all of this. I, I'm not saying that he was the very start of it, that he was a founder of it in and, in and of itself, but he was the first charismatically structured... Um, the one who could catalyze it into something that would be an actual, become a real movement. So I give him credit for that. Um, and because of that, there are some people that, that consider him to be the father of dispensationalism. Now, if you are somebody that believes in, that knows what dispensationalism is and you believe in it, uh, yes, I'm going to tell you right now that I'm going to be arguing against the validity of dispensationalism in this episode. I will be. And uh, But I also will say it this way. I am someone who was not aware they were dispensationalist most of his life and then has discovered it within the last couple of years. I've discovered that that's what I have fallen into, and it's not because I necessarily agree with that system. It's because I never bothered to research whether that system was accurate or not. So I was always being taught and told these concepts, some of these concepts, not all of them. And so therefore I blindly believe them. And I, again, for those of you that do not know my past, I, <laughs> I grew up Southern Baptist, went, my bachelor's and my master's are both in theology-related degrees. Bachelor in pastoral ministry, my master's in uh, biblical theology, okay, divinity with biblical languages, things of that nature. So I have both a, ma a bachelor's and a master's in theology-related studies, okay? And then I have had 30 years since then, nearly 30 years, not really, I mean, I guess 30 years total, but I've had a, a lifetime since then of education 
self-education as well as group education in those areas. So I, and yet I still never did the research on my own. I'm embarrassed to admit it, but I never bothered to do the research on my own to ask myself why I believe the things that I have believed until the last couple of years. And it's been in those last couple of years that I've looked at all this stuff and I'm going, wow, this was not taught to me appropriately on the bachelor's level. It wasn't taught to me appropriately on the master's in the seminary level. It wasn't taught in the church appropriately. It, it's uh, the books that I've read and the people that I have been focusing my reading on have not taught it appropriately. And so there's been a great deal of error. But I now understand one of the reasons why the seminary didn't teach it any differently and why the authors that I was reading didn't teach it any differently is because they were all had been influenced by the shift in the 1800s that I'm referring to right now. Okay, so it had an impact a, what, 150 years later, it impacted me in my seminary life and in my college life and in my church environment. It affected me. It, it's, it, it took hold. What I'm about to, to talk about in detail is what has taken hold in our society, primarily in the United States, although there are parts of the rest of the world that, that see it similarly, it never took hold completely the same way as it did here in the United States, particularly in the 1830s on. And again, John Nelson Darby was the first to look at it extensively this way and was the most charismatic catalyst toward it becoming the, the agreed-upon system. Now, what was, what was his thing? Well, one of the, the areas that he looked at is he looked at Isaiah 32, and, and it's not all of Isaiah 32. It's really the first eight verses that talks about it. It's a passage that talks about a prophecy of the return of the king, kingdom of Israel. Okay, And he looked at that prophecy as requiring a future fulfillment and realization okay, of an eschatological return of the kingdom of Israel. In other words, an end times return of the kingdom of Israel. And he saw that passage as being the big thing in it. And here's what that passage said. Again, this is Isaiah 32, the first eight verses. And I'm reading from the King James. And it says, Behold, a king shall reign in righteousness, and princes shall rule in judgment. And a man shall be as a hiding place from the wind, and a covert or shelter from the tempest, as rivers of water in a dry place, as the shadow of a great rock in a weary land. And the eyes of them that see shall not be dim, and the eyes of them that hear shall hearken. The heart also of the rash shall understand knowledge, and the tongue of the stammerers shall be ready to speak plainly. The vile or foolish person shall be no more called liberal or generous, nor the churl, the scoundrel, said to be bountiful. For the vile person shall speak villainy, meaning that the foolish person will speak senselessness, and his heart will work iniquity or sin, to practice hypocrisy, and to utter error against the Lord, to make empty the soul of the hungry, and he will cause the drink of the thirsty to fail. The instruments also of the churl or scoundrel are evil. He's a, he deviseth wicked devices to destroy the poor with lying words, even 
when the needy speaketh right. But the liberal deviseth liberal things, and by liberal things shall he stand. Okay, now this is making an argument for a time when a kingdom will be restored, but there will also be where the foolish you know, won't be seen uh, for things. The heart will understand knowledge. The tongue that stammered at one time will speak plainly. In other words, there'll be a writing or a correcting of the flaws in man at one point, but that the vile will be seen for what he is. Okay? And it, it's this idea that all the wrongs that are going on right now, all the wrongful people that are existing right now will be replaced with people who are on the right side of things. And it's this idea. Well, Darby saw this as a prophecy of the return, the full return of the kingdom of Israel. And he saw it as the fulfillment of the original covenant between God and Israel as his chosen people. Now, I know there's kind of a stretch there. You're going, those eight verses don't necessarily say all of that. You're right, they don't. But Darby interpreted this as one of those reasons why he believed that there would be a full return of the kingdom of Israel in the end times. And that he believed that the original covenant between God and Israel would be restored, that they would, would be there. Now, this, this led Darby to see, this is what's wild, this led him to see that the New Testament church was a separate program, okay, not related to that kingdom. <laughs> so he, he throws all of this into a twofold prophecy. He believed that there would be a, an earthly prophecy for Israel, and then there would be a heavenly prophecy for the church. Two separate end-time results. Now, this duality okay, required adjustments to the timeline that we know biblically. Darby considered the Mosaic prophecy that's spoken of here as on pause due to the church age. Okay, um, the church appears, and for some reason, it, it put it put the whole prophecy of the end time on a pause button. Okay, and now dispensationalists throughout history since Darby, including on through today, uh, they've referred to this even as a parenthesis in the dispensations. That the church age is just this uh, this blunder, this this uh, road bump. In, in the road of history leading to the end times, okay? And that the church would quite literally, it was literally holding back the fulfillment of this Isaiah 32 prophecy. That the church, in and of itself, the existence of the church was holding back the ability for the end times to come. Okay, let that soak in. That the existence of the church was holding back the biblically ordained prophecy of the end times. Now again, this is according to Darby, and it has been supported since Darby's time by fundamental dispensationalists. Now, because it required all of this, in order for the end times to happen... The church, according to Darby, would need to, there would have to be an, an eventual removal of the church from the timeline. 
right? But if it's in the way, if it's a, a dam holding back the waters of time in the end time prophecy for Israel, then the church has to be removed. The dam has to be broken down. It has to be removed. It has to be raptured in order to place the Mosaic earthly Israel prophecy back into motion. Now, I'm just letting that soak in for a second because you may already be thinking in the, the, the grounds that I'm thinking in that if we just stopped right here and talked about that, we'd be looking at, okay, so in a way, Darby was saying that the church is an obstacle to the end times. And then you have to ask, well, I mean, whose fault is that? Right? We'll get back to that. Now, by the mid-1800s, this concept, this series, and it's not, not just this, this is just one of the elements of it, but by the mid-1800s, both the Baptists, okay, and I fall guilty in this, I was raised Southern Baptist, both the Baptists and the old-school Presbyterians had become avid supporters of this concept, not just that particular one, but dispensationalism as a whole. Here in the United States, now it took root very heavily here in the United States. Didn't hit so well over in Europe. Didn't affect them quite as well, but it definitely affected the United States deeply. And part of that is because it had buy-in from the Baptists and from the Presbyterians. Um, by by late eighteen hundreds, you begin to get specific things that began to happen. In eighteen sixty six, you had James English who uh, organized the Believer's Meeting for Bible Study. And it was in this Believer's Meeting for Bible Study that he introduced dispensational ideas to a very small but very, very influential group of American evangelists, okay? evangelicals, fundamentalists. Okay? And these evangelicals were fighting a battle at that point with uh, religious liberalism which was taking root very seriously. Now, you put on a pause for a second, you have to understand, this was the time period in which the Darwinism was beginning to, to be talked about, but specifically, just evolutionary theories were being discussed and bandied about, okay? So you had evolution was being discussed very heavily in the late 1800s, and by 1866, when James English is introducing dispensationalism into this group of American evangelicals, the American evangelicals are looking at it going, this may be the answer that we have to help us fight this religious liberalism that's been going on. And they really like the idea of this premillennial concept, where the church gets, gets taken up before the, you know, the times get really bad, Okay. Uh, but it would also help define that they were looking at this as the church gets removed so that Israel's prophecy can continue. It was a two-part thing. It wasn't just rescuing the church. It was also an attempt to believe that and then that's going to usher in the end times. Okay? A, a twofold. Okay? The Christians get raptured and the Jews uh, get their kingdom. Hey, everybody wins. Okay? But it brought intense discussion during that time period around, and these evangelicals wrap themselves, embrace themselves with this idea that, that this premillennial thing is, is cool. This will help save us and counter against all the, uh, the religious liberalism that's going on. Now, parallel to all of this at that time, okay, uh, during all these 19th century events, 
there was also a growing development, and this is a little bit of a sidebar, but there was a growing development of what is deemed as constitutional evolution. Okay, It was in this time period, in the 1800s, when the concept of a living constitution were really fully being discussed and argued and beginning to be accepted. And, uh, and you hear that term today, that the, you know, the Constitution is a living document. And it sounds great, and it even sounds patriotic, but really what it means, at least in its original meaning, and I think it still carries through today under the liberal agenda, it still means this today, is that a living document adapts to its environment. And you go, well, you want the Constitution to do that. Well, no, you want us to understand the Constitution the way that it was written and then interpret our modern, modern conditions under that original meaning. You don't want the meaning of the Constitution to change with the times around you. That's not what the Constitution was designed to do. It's not what any document is actually designed to do. Okay, you don't... You don't change the original meaning of words because in today's world it means something different or it offends you. That's not the reasons to change it. Although we're living in a world now where they got rid of Mark Twain because some of his terminology offended people today. Or Shakespeare. Or whatever. The Constitution began to be looked at in the 1800s as something that if it's living... It can be redefined for each generation. All we got to do is look at new terminology for things. Again, on the surface, it's like, well, we want it to be living and breathing, and it's, it's, it's a being, you know. That's what the general mass public thinks of when they hear a living constitution. But that's not what they meant. They were referring to, we can redefine all of this stuff written in the constitution to mean something different today. It's very important you take the Constitution in its original intent. The Founding Fathers created those documents under a particular intention, under certain circumstances. And if you modify those circumstances to fit today's circumstances, you're going to misinterpret what their intention was. I'll give you a, This is yet another sidebar. Let me give you another Side note to this, we have had a, a, a tendency to look at the, uh, uh, and I may be saying this wrong, and I'm not trying to be ignorant in it, but in the, ref, in the, the Constitution it refers to partial representation, where a person was not seen as a, a full person. It was, they were seen as a fraction of a person in the Constitution. We have been trained in the 20th and 21st century to believe that that was meant to be a derogatory statement against the slaves. When in reality, in the original historical context, it was actually intended not to be a reflection upon the individuals that were the slaves, but was intended to be a rebuke of these slave-owning states. The states, the nation as a whole, as they were creating the Constitution, wanted to abolish slavery. But there were states that were not willing to do so. And so... The remaining states said, well, here's what's going to happen. We're only going to give you a fraction of the representation of those members of your state because we are penalizing you, the state-owned slaveholders, we're penalizing you for your representation because you're not giving them freedom. That was the original intent. 
You don't hear about that in school. I certainly didn't. That was something that I had to look at based off of early documents. Okay? But that's just one example. It was not meant to be derogatory toward the slaves. It was meant to be a major slap on the wrist and a almost kind of a sense of a blackmailing on those states that refused to get rid of slavery. They were telling them, you can have 100% representation of all the people that are in your state if you will just abolish slavery. But if you're not going to do that, we're only going to give you partial credit for those that you maintain in slavery. It wasn't an insult to the slaves. It was meant to be an insult to the slave owners. But that's not what you're taught today because we've reinterpreted all of it because that would really sound bad. And the reason why it really sound bad is because those were liberal areas that they don't want to cover in history. But again, if you redefine based off of your current generation documents that were written by a previous generation under different circumstances, of course you're going to be able to reinterpret a number of things. And so it was in the 1800s they wanted to refer to the Constitution as a Constitution that would evolve. They were already talking about evolution in general, so why don't we talk about the Constitution evolving as well? And so this is part of what was being argued. Now, to make some of these points, and going back to one of my previous episodes talking about the overbearing power of the Supreme Court, it didn't start in the 1970s with the Roe v. Wade and those type of decisions. It, it goes back into the early 1800s as well. In 1803, the Supreme Court actually expanded its own power through its decision-making that it did in the case of Marbury v. Madison. And it was in this case that the Chief Justice, John Marshall at the time, said that it is emphatically the duty of the judicial department to say what the law is. Now, again, on the surface, that sounds like, well, you know, the judicial department should be able to define what a law is. No, what he was referring to is, is their duty in the judicial department to tell you what that law means. meaning to define what that law means. That you couldn't just read the law, they had to tell you what that meant. That's an overreach. But because of that, the Supreme Court has been able to go in and go and reinterpret and reinvent and uh, to discover new meanings to things. And uh, as I said in my previous episode, it's how we ended up with the results of things like Roe v. Wade. We're going to completely reinterpret uh, the 14th Amendment to refer to something totally different, even though the wording is nowhere in there, we're going to refer to it as something different. We're going to tell you that this is what it really means, even though there's nothing in the context of the law itself that indicates that. But in 1803, in the Marbury v. Madison, Supreme Court gains new approval because of their chief justice. Then in 1823, the Supreme Court again expands, but this time it expands federal override or overreach across the land through the decision that it made on uh, McCulloch, ver uh, McCulloch v. Maryland. Okay? And affirmed that the federal government had the right to take actions, quote, necessary and proper to meet the urgent needs of the nation. So the Supreme Court comes in and overrides the Constitution, overrides Congress, and says that the federal has a right to overrule local to take actions necessary and proper to meet urgent needs. So if there's an urgent need, 
federal government supersedes the local. Now, we know in today's 21st century context of that is that another way of wording it is that never let a good crisis go wasted. Whenever there is, if the federal level can overreach in a time of need, then the federal government will make sure that it always has a time of need. See, create the panic, create the need, and then the federal government will come in and take over the situation. And so we have 1823 Supreme Court decision on McCulloch v. Maryland to thank for that. Then we get later on into the 1800s. In 1886, the Supreme Court again goes in and expands things. And it this time it decided to expand the meaning of the word person. <laughs> Sound familiar? We're, we're going on, you're no longer a mother, you're now a birthing parent. Right? So that they want to redefine things. Well, the Supreme Court went in and they decided that they were going to modify the meaning of the word person to include corporations. They did this in their decision in the Santa Clara County v. Southern Pacific Railroad Company. Corporation was indicated as a person and therefore had the same rights as a person. Now think about how dangerous that is. You may not even think it is dangerous because you're so used to it as being a concept today. But a corporation is not a person. A corporation is not a living, breathing entity. Corporations should not have the same limitations or, or, or lack of limitations placed on them as a human being would. But ever since 1886, Supreme Court has allowed corporations to be referred to as persons. And you think about it, when you read a legal document, it does refer to it as, as a person. Companies, corporations, and it's scary. It's very scary that, it, in other words, a person can sue a company as a person, but the company can also sue a person as, as a person. <clears throat> anyway, 1800s Supreme Court decisions, and all of this is an overreach, and it's all part of the redefining of the Constitution as a living Constitution or as a evolutionary Constitution. So throughout the 1800s, the concepts of these core beliefs were gradually being rewritten. Okay, especially when it revolved around things called uh, between church and state. Okay, the fundamentalist of the 1800s, which today we would see as extremely conservative, they changed along with these core beliefs during all this time period. They were the ones supporting this change. And we look at that and look at the way we pictured fundamentalists then, and we go, there's no way they would have bought into this. No, they were at the forefront of all this. The fundamentalist Baptists, the fundamental Presbyterians, the fundamentalists in general were the ones that were at the, the cutting edge of this belief system shifting, be it religiously or be it politically. And they saw dispensationalism especially as their new champion in order to survive through all this the rewriting of all of this, okay? Now, by 1872, you had a man named Dwight L. Moody, and you're familiar with Moody, the Moody Institute. Um, by 1872, Moody was boosting the dispensationalism and encouraging its spread, okay, through things as well, and he was doing it through Bible studies, but he was also doing it through published reference Bibles, and that was the new take. In the eight, late 1800s, mid to late 1800s, uh, Bibles were being produced with footnotes or endnotes in them as well that were 
throwing this dispensational document uh, doctrine into the actual body of the Bible. And it doesn't take very long for people to go from believing that the scriptures are at the top and somebody's opinion is at the bottom to believing that the opinion at the bottom is also part of the scripture. Uh, it doesn't take long to look at the, the entire thing, that everything written on that page somehow is God's word, and it's not true. The scripture itself is. The commentary isn't. The commentary, in, in many cases, even in today's study Bibles, is one person's opinion, one person's take on something. And in the 1800s, it was particularly that. It was Dwight Moody's personal opinion, or it was Schofield's personal opinion, and so forth. And you'll see that, and that's, that's the next figure. In 1909, you had C.I. Schofield who comes in and releases his own reference Bible, which again has his, his little footnotes in there, his own personal statements, his own dispensationalism thrown in there. And the Oxford University is the one who presses these Bibles into existence. So as of 1909, you've got the Schofield reference Bible appearing out there, pumping out in the tunes of hundreds of thousands of, of editions all with dispensationalism at, at its roots. Now, influenced by Schofield was also Lewis Sperry Chafer, okay, who in 1924, he founded the Dallas Theological Seminary. Still exists today. I know. My own daughter-in-law actually is a student there. Um, it, but even today, it is considered the main institution of dispensational education. I'm not proud of the fact that something as close as to where I live uh, is the founding ground of so much what I deem heresy. And, and there'll be more. You'll understand that more as I detail more into the belief system of dispensationalism. But again, you had Schofield releases his reference Bible in 1909. In less than two decades, in 15-year period or so, you have a seminary being created based on all this. So you go from individuals being trained in reference Bibles to this dispensational thinking to an entire seminary being created to now cookie-cutter out minister upon minister upon minister using this dispensational concept. Now, carrying on from this, you, you, have, you have individuals like Torrey, Gray, Erdman, Dixon, Gordon, Blackstone, etc. that saturate the early 20th century with conferences and evangelical efforts and, and missionary statements to mainstream dispensationalism across the United States. So that by the mid-20th century, others such as Rowry, Stanley, and MacArthur orchestrate their own reference and study Bibles, marketing for the dispensational ideas. Then in the 80s, you have your Left Behind series that begins to be popular, and it mainstreams for the average reader. Somebody who wouldn't even pick up a Bible will pick up a Left Behind book and read it, and you've got however many volumes there were of that before it was all over. I mean, 20-something different volumes if you include the kids' versions and the supplemental books and all those kind of things. And you can, you, it easily, a dozen and a half, if not two dozen books written, all fictional takings of a dispensational concept of Scripture. All gets mainstreamed. And all of this, all of this influence gets carried heavily into the 21st century. Okay. And as of 2003, 
you have former dispensationalist Dallas Theological Seminary graduates who decide they're going to found the Grace School of Theology in Houston, Texas. So yet another one. This is yet another school of theology based off dispensationalism that, you know, you could argue, well, you know, 1924, a lot of things changed since then. Well, this is 2003, and graduates of that system are still, here we are in the 21st century, still creating seminaries or schools of theology based on dispensationalism. So it's growing, not dying, and it's still teaching the same methods. In fact, they hold okay, that the Bible must be interpreted as language is normally used, recognizing the importance of dispensational distinctions. So this school founded, what, 18 years ago? No, hello, I can't get my... Yeah, 18 years ago in Houston, Texas, is still saying, talking about you've got to recognize the importance of dispensational distinctions, meaning distinctions of time periods throughout the church history, which also means you've got to recognize that parenthesis period that is known now by most of us as the church age. And ironically enough, it's this group within the church age that are claiming they themselves are in the way of end-time prophecy. And so they've all got to believe that we got to get the church out of the way so the end-time prophecy can happen. Now, why is all this important? You might be asking, why in the world are you spending all this time on this? And this is, this is crazy. Well, I'm doing it partly because of what I've described so far. I mean, it's got to be seen as crazy. It's got to be. You've got to understand some of this is just extreme. It's like it's one of the problems is if you could go back to the second century and see this as a foundational element, you could go, okay, the early church believed this. There's got to be some merit to it. The early church didn't. One individual indicated that there would probably be divisions within the history, meaning development. Well, in the first couple of hundred years of a religious movement, of course you're going to see development. That doesn't mean that God ordained changes from one period to another, and dispensationalism teaches that each of these periods is isolated from all the other periods, meaning that whatever they focused on in that period is not discussed or focused on in any of the other periods. And that's just simply not true. You cannot tell me, and, and, and their belief is that the most recent period, the most recent dispensation, is what we are living in now, the eschatological one. The end-time discussion is the focus. That would lead people to believe. I mean, dispensationalism's doctrine in and of itself is foolish because it says no previous period, no other period uses the centerpiece of that period's discussion, which would imply that nobody up until this last dispensation has ever thought of the end times, has ever discussed it as a central doctrine. I can guarantee you that people in the first and second century and the third and the fourth and the fifth during all the dark ages I can guarantee you during all these different time periods, people were very seriously considering that they were living in the end times. Very much so. It was very heavily a part of their daily discussion and prayer. So it's foolishness to believe that only this period now that we're currently living in has ever really seriously thought about 
the doctrine of end times. That's foolishness. Guarantee the persecutions that took place in the early centuries post-Christ's resurrection definitely were thinking we've got to be living in the end times. Christ has got to be returning soon. And it was definitely at the forefront of their daily lives. But dispensational uh, doctrine would tell you that no, it's this period that's isolated into thinking this way. No. Complete garbage. Now, that's just one of the reasons why it's important. Okay, One of the other things that makes what I'm talking about today important is that you've got to realize that you, this is what I said at the, really at the beginning. <laughs> these, these ideas have put, are predominantly less than 200 years old. <laughs> We're supposed to believe somehow that... Um, <laughs> It's just crazy. We're supposed to believe that 1,800 years of church history goes by and nobody understood the first century writings. Nobody understood the prophecies for those 1,800 years. And then somehow in the 1800s in the United States, people became enlightened and understood the, the meanings of these documents. That for the first time... In all of church history, people suddenly understood what they meant. So they were never intended to be interpreted in any way whatsoever by the people that were first-hand eyewitness accounts or second-hand account people who were the next generation. There's no way those people could have had a clear understanding of what was being written in that time and age in the original language that it was written in. But no, you've got to go 1,800 years later and change languages and translations of things over the centuries in order for you to get a clearer understanding of what the early apostles were writing. Again, that's foolish. But dispensationalism would have you believe that it was in the 1800s that suddenly the church was enlightened. And then the other reason why it's ridiculous and why I think it's important that this be brought up is that dispensationalism treats the church as nothing more than a burr in the saddle of Jewish prophecy. And this was claims not made just by Darby back in the 1830s, but has been in the structure of dispensationalism since. And that element alone completely uproots the validity of Jesus' earthly ministry. Why? Seriously, common sense should tell you, why would, why would the Lord send His Son here to have an earthly ministry to develop disciples and apostles that would go out and reach the expanses of the world with His message? Why in the world would He do all of that? if it was intended to do nothing but put a pause on the original covenant that God had between himself and Israel as his chosen people. Really? God's going to have this promise that he's going to keep to the Israelites. But he's going to put it on pause by having his own son come in and build a structure that then ripples out and becomes a church movement, the largest religious movement in history in order to put all of that on pause. But it's an insult to 
the earthly ministry of Jesus as Christ. And what's insulting to go along with that is it also insults insults the church itself. And it was created, formalized, and embraced by fundamental evangelicals in 1800s United States of America. And it became the standard of education within the church by the 20th century. That's why I'm bringing all this up. And I was raised in it. My parents were raised in it. I mean, my my great-grandparents, I mean, one of them was even a Baptist minister. And unfortunately, I never got to see him of an age where I, I, I don't know him. I don't know what his ministry was really like. I don't know if he taught dispensationalism or not. But if he did, he would have come by it honestly in that time period. 20th century... Protestantism, I can't speak for Catholicism so much, but Protestantism in the United States was based off of these concepts. Now, do they understand to the fulfillment of all of this? No, but the basics of what I've covered so far, it seemed pretty standard. But here's where it gets more specific. In order to to actually follow Darby's version of dispensationalism, which is the most maintained version of, of dispensationalism in the world, okay, even today. But you have to believe the following claims in order to, to truly fall under dispensationalism, okay? First, you have to believe that the Jews, and this is, this is where I'm going to get arguments of people claiming that I'm being anti-Semitic. I really don't care your feelings on how I feel about this. I'm just going to read these statements off, and you tell me if you think these seem valid, Okay? But you have to, in order to truly follow the dispensational teachings that were started primarily by Darby and have been held throughout the centuries, the last century and a half at least, is that first, that the Jews are still God's earthly chosen people. Even though they have rejected Jesus as the Messiah. You have to first believe that the Jews are still God's earthly chosen people. And there are some of you that are probably sitting in churches today and you've always been told, we've got to be brothers with Israel. We've got to be. They're the key to all of this. But the pastors will not tell you why Israel is the key to all of this. They won't tell you that in order for Israel's prophecy to be maintained, the church has to be removed. They don't tell you in that method. They don't don't present it that way. They just say, where we stand with Israel is where we will stand as the church. No, not really. According to dispensationalism, true dispensationalism is the church has to disappear. The church has to be removed. So if your church is teaching you that we need to be united with Judaism, that's false. But that's part, that's tenant number one, really, of dispensationalism, that The Jews are still the chosen people here on earth, even though they've rejected Jesus as the Christ, as the Messiah. Second, that they, you have to believe that they will still inherit the future millennial kingdom 
when that same Jesus comes back. Okay, so first, they're still the chosen people, even though they rejected Jesus as Christ. But when Christ returns, they're still going to get the future millennial kingdom. Then the third stage is in this. Now, in order for that prophecy to be realized, the church needs to be raptured, quote-unquote raptured, meaning it has to be removed from the earth so that the Jews' prophetic clock can start up again. And then the fourth stage in that is that during which time, okay, once the church is removed and the Jewish timeline starts back up again, at that point then, what dispensationalism teaches is that there will be a remnant of Jews that are now repentant believers in Jesus. So only at that point will they will a, a fraction of them believe in Jesus as their Messiah. They will repent for having crucified him and they will now worship him as their Messiah. That remnant, it's all Jewish. So in other words, the, the whole latter part of Revelation, as we've been taught through time, through recent time, is that that whole latter part of that has nothing to do with the church. That we don't even need to study it. We don't even know it because we're not going to be here. The church won't be here. There'll be a remnant of Jews that will be, and they themselves will walk through the final stages of the Great Tribulation. Their nation will be purified. They will be protected to the very end of time. Meaning Judaism that Judaism will be restored, their nation will be purified, and Judaism will be reinstated as the masterpiece of all of it. Now, if any of that seems really alien or new, then you haven't been fully told what dispensationalism really is at its foundations and what it maintains to be over the time since then. Because those are all tenets that are very much centerpieces to dispensationalism. The Jews are still the chosen. They will still get the millennium kingdom. That the church has to be removed from the earth in order for this timeline to be completed. And after the removal of the church, the Jews will be reinstated with their kingdom, protected in their Judaism if they are repentant. Oh, now, so that you understand, now, dispensationalism does allow for a consolation prize for the church. The church does state that it will have a mystery, heavenly prophecy given to it. Now, I find it interesting that dispensationalism refers to a mystery. Dispensationalism claims that the church will be given a mystery. Heavenly prophecy. <coughs> I mean, I joke about it being a consolation prize. Heaven is no consolation, and I know that. And I'm not making fun of that concept. Please don't misinterpret that. I'm not indicating a heavenly reward as some kind of a second-hand placement award compared to an earthly kingdom. I'm not making that. But the church has always been teaching us I say, and when I'm by always, I mean 20th century on especially, has been teaching us that the church gets raptured and that's a blessing, but it also implies that this end is going to work in a certain way. Dispensationalism tells you that, no, really what's happening is the church has been the thorn in the side of Judaism's prophecy. The church will be removed from it and it'll get some kind of a spiritual reward, but that the 
the basically the the bulk of the Old Testament, I mean of the New Testament revelation passages, really is talking about a restoration of the Jewish kingdom, and really has nothing to do with the church at all. And you've heard ministers say that that you know there's no reference to the church in the latter parts of Revelation, which is an indication the church isn't here. They leave out the part that, is, that the reason why they are making that statement is because they believe that the church has been removed from the equation. That Revelation is really a book, a letter written about the restoration of the Jewish kingdom. Now the claim would be, again, in order to believe all that, you have to look at you know dispensationalism, sidelines Christianity. It has to indicate that Jesus came here to spark what became Christianity, only to then have Christianity removed so that the Jewish lineage can be restored and finish out the timeline. Really? You had to bring yourself here as a son and have him do an earthly ministry, crucifixion, and resurrection in order to restore an earthly kingdom for the Jews? That that was the, that was the purpose for all of this? Well, if you're going to do that, why even bother to have a movement that became known as Christianity? Why even bother to have it? Why would it even exist in the timeline if it's just going to be removed? See, these are huge holes to me. They're huge holes in dispensationalism. And yet, they are the foundation of dispensationalism, and they are the foundations of what we have come to think of in the church, only we don't get all of these details told to us. There are portions of it that get focused on, and we ignore the other parts, we don't, or we don't know the other parts are there. We're told that we should hold to our Judeo-Christian values, okay? What they're really telling you is that you got to wait it out because the Jews in the end will get their kingdom back. Oh, and the Christian part of it, well, it gets removed from here so that the Judeo portion, portion of it can happen. Okay, now, now that's, again, none of this is me being anti-Semitic. It's being anti-dispensational. I don't have a problem with the Jews. Okay? I don't have a problem with them. I just flat out don't. But I do believe that they rejected their Christ when the Gentile didn't. And there were some Jews that accepted him, obviously, because his inner twelve and the apostles were Jews. But then you've got Greek influence in there as well. Gentile influence in there as well. And the church was built off of all of them. Christ didn't come to build up a stronger Jewish kingdom. He came to remove the burden of being Jewish as a part of the equation. He came in uniting all peoples. Jesus came as a uniter of all all people as God's chosen people if they accept him. Judaism doesn't do that. (laughs) 
And this concept of dispensationalism doesn't do this. It says, well, in the end, basically, the Jews get their kingdom back. A, a fragment of them do. But the rest of them, what happens to everybody else? Well, it doesn't say. Is, does it mean that everybody else is judged? Meaning only the Jews get the, 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 end, the end reward, period. That's it. That's it. If you follow Christ, you know, doesn't do any good. But it also calls into question other issues in Revelation. If the church has been removed, and therefore the church was a hindrance to the Jewish kingdom being restored, um, then those people who are quote-unquote saved during the tribulation period aren't being saved for a Christian reward. They're being saved for a Jewish reward. So are only Jews saved during the tribulation? If your loyalty is to the Jewish kingdom of God during that time, then you will be spared. You will be found worthy. And if you don't follow the Jewish kingdom during that time period, you will be condemned. Well, if that's the case, then what does that say about those that were quote-unquote raptured in Christianity? So they were, they were just a unique group of people but, if, but there are people that develop that same faith system during the end times, they won't be spared. If there are those that come to Christ during that time period, I mean, it's, it's all mixed. If it's a Jewish remnant that gets saved, does that mean that non-Jews can become Jewish during that period? It doesn't say. There's no indication of that. Because there are holes in this, major holes in all of this. But bottom line, dispensationalism sidelines Christianity in favor of a return to power for what we would consider today to be Judaism. It strongly implies that the Jesus earthly ministry, the salvational death and resurrection, and the subsequent forming of Christianity is based entirely upon these, which is based entirely upon these events, is nothing more than a hiccup in the fulfilling of God's original promise to Israel. But it also gives a very heavy indication that dispensational had to create the concept of the removal of the church, therefore of the rapture of the church, in order to introduce this idea. In order for this remedy, in order for this structure to be put into place according to dispensationalism, the church had to be removed, so therefore the term or the concept of the rapture had to be created. It's not spoken of for the 18 years leading up to that. 1,800 years of church history doesn't focus on a rapture of the church. Now, it does talk about it taking up. But it does not focus on a rapture. The rapture is an 1800s concept. The terminology, the concept is an 1800s concept. And that goes back to what I said a few minutes ago, that we're somehow supposed to be enlightened now in the 1800s when we weren't for the 1,800 years leading up to that. Now, what does the Bible actually say about this concept? Okay, and that, that's the thing that it is. Is there a clear biblical indication of a removal of the church during the end times? And this is where people have argued and debated, and I'm not going to pretend to be the authority on this in any way, but I've had friendships that have ended, some silently, some ugly, over my version of this versus theirs. And I'm sorry to hear that. 
Uh, and a couple of years ago, I would probably be on their side of the argument, but I'm no longer there, and that's just where I am. In the last two years, a lot of things have changed in the way that I see the interpretation, in the way that I've even read. I'm going to read through Revelation itself. Forget about commentaries, just reading the text, and I'm not finding things in there that I was always told were there. And that's because, quite honestly, I had abandoned my own level of research when it comes to that. But what does the Bible actually say about this, about this whole concept of a, of a removal of the church or a rapture of the church? And you have to take a moment to stress the utter foolishness to believe that it took those 1,800 years for humanity to understand the words and visions of the first century firsthand witnesses, okay, or their next generation, for that matter. Okay? I'm far more likely to believe stories told to me about history that happened during my parents' lifetime before I was born than I am to believe uh, somebody today trying to tell me that this is what happened who was born after me. Okay? My kids cannot tell me with better accuracy the events that took place in the lifetime of my parents who were first-hand witnesses. I'm sorry. They experienced it. My children were told a version of it. Okay, and that's just <laughs> that's just a fifty-something year shift. Okay, let alone eighteen hundred years. So, first-hand or early-hand witnesses to events are going to be far more accurate. Always, always. I'm sorry. I mean, and there are people that could argue. Well, you know, people who are right in the middle of an event don't see the whole story, and that history eventually shows you the whole whole story. No, well, you get slightly outside of that circle and you're able to examine the events that have happened, say, within the last hundred years, then you might get some accuracy. When you get into two, three, four hundred years, a thousand years removed from something, no, I'm sorry, you're not going to have a better understanding of what took place in that time period. You're not. You're going to have a far more higher hundred thousand foot viewpoint on it. Um not a rational analysis of what really happened. I'm sorry, you're just not. The further in time you get removed from an event, the more dynamic those events become and the more fictionalized those events become. So, and that's always going to be the case. Sorry, you're not going to get more accuracy 1,800 years later than you did among those people that were eyewitnesses. Just not going to happen. And anybody who believes that they are is a fool. I'm sorry, you just are. You're a fool. And it would be hubris for me to try and sit here and try to claim that I have the answers to all of this. I don't. I'm telling you my understanding based off of what I have seen after having spent 30 years seeing it a different way and being taught it in a different way. I am now seeing it in a very different perspective and I'm now rejecting 30 years of training because of what I'm, I'm actually going back to the Scripture and seeing. And I'm going, my 30 years didn't tell me this, but the Scripture says it this way. Or the Scripture doesn't say that at all. So, or I'm going back to pre-1800s writings, at least, and looking at the way that it was examined. Because I'm having trouble dealing with 1800s writers in some cases, too. But... It would be beyond hubris for me to claim that I somehow have an understanding that no one in any previous generation has understood. So I don't believe that. But I, I do believe that we did not become somehow enlightened in the 1800s suddenly 
on the true nature of the revelation of Jesus Christ as spoken by Christ himself or by the apostles or presented to John at Patmos. I don't believe that. The best scholarship possible is to go as close to the original events as you can get. Period. If you can't do the very scripture itself, you have to go with the eyewitnesses. If you can't do eyewitnesses, direct descendants to them, and so on. But no 21st century scholar is going to ever discover or reveal a clearer, more accurate truth about what happened in Revelation or what it refers to. Sorry, it's not going to happen. But dispensationalism would have you believe that within the last two centuries, that's exactly what they've done. They have a clear understanding where no previous generation did. And that goes for religion, it goes for politics, it goes for science, it goes for all of that. Again, 1800s. Now, let me throw another thing in there before I close all this out. That, that is where I take all of this as far as the religious area is concerned, just as highlights. The next stage in this is the educational system that shifted. Okay, And I already mentioned that religion is the first thing that you try to get a hold of. You get people where they live in their spirit, and then you try to educate people in a particular direction. For those of you that don't know, the education system was predominantly at-home education in the United States until about the mid-1800s. And up until that point, you were getting... Um, where it wasn't taking place physically in the home, it was taking place within the church. The education, the schooling system was literally housed inside churches, and it had religious doctrine incorporated into the curriculum on your daily basis until the mid-1800s. And it was 1852 was the first time when a state actually began to mandate, okay, you got to love that, you, they began to mandate compulsory education, and it was Massachusetts. Massachusetts, in 1852, came up with a mandatory compulsory education system that removed the system out from the church or out from the home and put it into a public setting, and it began to remove the religious elements from it, mid-1800s. Again, 1800 shift. So religion gets, you know, you alter the religion, then you take the religion out of the education system, and you mandate the system be put into a political area, okay, federally run, and you re-manipulate everything going forward. 1800 shift. Starts with religion, works its way into politics and education, and then eventually becomes the new core of beliefs for people in and out of the church. And you can see where all of this has led us. You see where we are today. This concept of a separation of church and state, it doesn't go back to the 1700s. It doesn't go back to the writing of the Constitution. It goes back into the mid-1800s politically, but religiously it began a half century earlier than that in the rewriting of scriptural doctrine through things like dispensationalism. And unfortunately, it wasn't the highly liberal church that was causing this. It was a reaction to the liberalism that the fundamental conservative base took on. It's a deceptive concept that has very, very little evidence of support behind it that got taken on by the fundamentalists, by the conservatives, 
in an attempt to battle the liberalism that was taking place, which again takes us back to the same concept I've discussed before. The left and the right, as we think of them politically, the left and the right are not opposite sides. They are an up and down, not a left and right of the same machine. The earthly deception that is there give them the illusion that they are choosing sides when in reality they're really not. Liberalism was destroying the church and the politics of the day, but so was the so-called element of conservatism that was buying into garbage like dispensationalism. Both avenues were destroying the family, destroying the political framework of our Constitution, we're destroying our education system, we're destroying our science understandings, we're destroying all of that. And again, fundamentally it happened in the 1800s shift. More later, as we continue on with this, I'm sure I will get some negative uh, reflection from this, but I'm just telling you, this is what my research has shown me, and this is what my soul is being shown through the Holy Spirit in the direction that things have gone in. And it, it's, it's in answer to when did we see these things change? And I'm noticing that the change was happening in the 1800s predominantly. And you can go back and do research all these same things. I'm not coming to an end conclusion to any of this. I'm just indicating, hey, these are the facts. This is when these things change and this is what they believe in. And this is what we've been told, but we've only been told pieces of it. But I'm here to tell you, at least in this episode and moving forward, that there has been a shift within the 19th century which has created a ripple effect of worldwide change ever since. And I believe that it started within the, the reweaving of the fabric of Christian doctrine here in the United States. More later, folks. I love y'all. I'm praying for you. Until we meet again, God's peace. Mm -hmm.